Acts chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 12. We'll start reading in verse 12, Acts chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we hear your word, as written by Luke to Theophilus for his instruction, as superintended by your Holy Spirit through his hand, not only for the instruction of Theophilus, but for the instruction of your church, even us, We pray that your spirit would illumine our minds, that he would turn on the lights in our dark minds and give us understanding of your word. That we would understand what it is that Luke is teaching Theophilus here, what your spirit is communicating to your church about your son Jesus Christ, our risen and ascended Lord, who is ruling and reigning by his spirit, who is present in his church, working powerfully by the Spirit through the hands of the apostles. Pray, give us understanding that you would change us as a result of it, that we would draw more closely to you through your Son and by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we read a summary like this, I just took this little small section of verses 12 through 16. As you know, we've been working from chapter 5, verse 1, as we went through the story of Ananias, Sapphira, the last two weeks, and really through verse 16, um, this is a little summary section that falls right between Ananias and Sapphira and their story, and then what comes next, which is more persecution for the disciples or the apostles. And as we look at this little summary section, we ought to start asking a series of questions. Perhaps the two most important questions are, what is Luke trying to teach Theophilus to whom he wrote this book. If we remember, verse 1 starts off saying, in the first book, O Theophilus, referencing back to the gospel of Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, I taught you about all the things that Jesus began, or I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, Luke has written to Theophilus both, both the gospel, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. He's telling him, both, he's telling him about Jesus' work in his incarnation, his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, and his ascension. And now in the, in the book of Acts, he's telling us about Jesus' ongoing work by his spirit in his church, most particularly through the apostles. That Jesus is the ascended Lord, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he is now ruling and reigning and governing and building his church by his spirit, through his apostles. He's teaching that to Theophilus. 
And as we learn about that, we want to know, well, what is the Holy Spirit through Luke communicating not only to Theophilus, Theophilus, but to us now? And I've been trying to demonstrate since the beginning of the book of Acts that Luke is really focused on making the case that Jesus has risen and ascended, and as the risen and ascended Lord, he is building his church through his apostles and by his Spirit. That's what I've been focusing on. As the resurrected, ascending, ascended Lord, Jesus has ushered in the age of the Spirit. His kingdom is spreading. The church is being powerfully built, and this is happening through the Spirit-empowered preaching and ministry of the apostles. This is happening, though Satan has brought opposition. He's brought opposition from the outside, from the Jewish religious leaders, and he's brought opposition from the inside, from the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus will build his church, in other words, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I want you to understand that Luke is, a, or excuse me, the, gospel, the book of Acts is a picture of Jesus on the offensive. Jesus' promise in Matthew 16 or a statement that he'll build his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, is not, not a statement about Jesus being on the defense or the church being on the defense. Hell is on the defense. Gates are defensive weapons. You don't pick up a gate and smack somebody with it, right? Gates are defensive weapons. They're, they're used to defend. And Jesus is on the march by his spirit in the church. Luke is emphasizing this to help Theophilus continue to have, as he says in Luke 1.4, continue to have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke wants Theophilus to know that Jesus has not only lived and died and resurrected, but that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he's been seated as king, and that he is presently ruling and reigning in his church. The Holy Spirit is superintending all this, I think for much the same reason for the church today. We need to see what the, resu resu re excuse me, the resurrected Lord has done and is doing in his church by his Spirit. And today, what I want to do is look at four characteristics, really, of the church that the Spirit of Christ is building. If you will, we see these kind of characteristics as the Spirit is at work. We see these characteristics of the church that the Spirit of Christ is building. So, here, here's what I want to do is start with the first one. The first one is the Spirit of Christ laid an apostolic foundation. Now, I, I want you to hear that. That is the only one I'm going to give you in the, um, in the complete past tense. Okay, The Spirit of Christ is building an apostolic church, but I, I just want to say it this way. He laid an apostolic foundation. There are no more apostles. He laid an apostolic foundation. We see the apostles working signs and wonders by the Holy Spirit, demonstrating that the Spirit of Christ is empowering them in a unique way. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Notice this statement. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by what? The hands of the apostles or through the hands of the apostles. Now this phrase is important. You don't pick this up in the English because of the way it's it's laid out here, but this actually, this text actually starts in the Greek text with 
the phrase, through the hands of the apostles. Through the hands of the apostles. It's fronted for emphasis. That these signs and miracles are being done through the hands of the apostles. It's emphasizing that Christ has set these men apart as the foundation of the church. He was establishing their apostolic authority by working powerfully through them. The Lord Jesus had set them apart. And as his emissaries, they were endued powerfully with the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. As we see the church, early church, just at Pentecost, right after many had been saved and baptized, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine, and the fellowship. That means the church. The breaking of, the, of bread and the prayers. And awe, notice this, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done where? Through the apostles. Through the apostles. The church was devoted, if you notice, to the apostles' doctrine, and the signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. So the church was focused on, committed to, teaching, proclaiming, believing the apostles' doctrine, and the miracles, the signs, the wonders are being done through the apostles. In fact, in every instance of signs and wonders being done in the book of Acts, they're all done by the apostles except two. And those signs and wonders are performed by Stephen and Philip, men who are specifically set apart in Acts 6 and seem to be co-laboring in some sense along with the apostles as evangelists and deacons. And my point here is that the great emphasis of the book of Acts when it comes to signs and wonders, is on the apostles because Jesus is laying an apostolic foundation for his church by his spirit. The apostolic foundation is foundational to the church of Jesus Christ. The apostolic witnesses. Look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15, if you will. Keep your hand in Acts, though, because we'll come right back there. But John chapter 15. As Jesus is speaking to his apostles, look at verse 26. But when the Helper comes, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now I want you to hear that the Holy Spirit is the witness to Christ. He is the preeminent witness to Christ. He, the Spirit, will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Now the you there, I just want you to understand, the you there is the you he's talking to, not the you in the pew. You understand the distinction? No, we don't have pews, but you get it. The you there is the apostles. He's speaking to them. You will be my witnesses. You weren't there. You guys are understanding that, right? You weren't present. When you read you, don't first think me, first think them, who he's talking to. The Holy Spirit will be my witness, and he'll come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, speaking directly to the apostles. Now look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1, he's speaking again to the apostles. Again, you weren't here either. 
Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This isn't a paradigmatic verse for missions. This isn't the paradigm like this is here, this is uh, Jerusalem, and, and out there is you know Judea right out in this neighborhood over here. And then if you get to Taft, now you're in Samaria and then the ends of the earth. These are historical locations where the apostles historically witnessed. They preached in these locations. People were saved in these locations. And as if you go back and listen to my sermon in Acts 1, this is picking up on language from Isaiah about the restoration of Israel as the Holy Spirit sets apart these witnesses who are the apostles. And it's why there's such a focus at the end of Acts 1 on making sure there's 12 of them prior to Pentecost. And it's why they're set apart in such a specific way in this text Again and again, they are the foundation of the restored people of God. The apostles would be the authoritative, spirit-empowered witnesses to Jesus Christ. I don't mean by that that you don't speak about Jesus too. I mean by that that this terminology, first and foremost, has a very specific, redemptive, historical meaning, purpose. They're laying a foundation. You are members of Christ's church, but you do not lay the foundation to Christ's church. Ephesians 2, 19-20, Paul tells us that. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You are not one of, the, one of the apostles. I'm not one of the apostles. They laid, laid the foundation. That's precisely why Paul can tell the Corinthians they ought to trust him and don't trust the super apostles, the so-called super apostles. Look at 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. Keep your hand there. Go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're just going to look at, start in verse 11. There are these super apostles in Corinth, that's what they're, how they seem to be referred, who are trying to lead Corinth away from the true gospel, who are claiming to have the Spirit in greater measure, I suppose, than the apostles. And we, we read this in verse 11, I've been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all in fear to these super apostles even though I am nothing. Now listen to what he says about his ministry. Paul speaking about his ministry. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. See, these are the signs of a true apostle. The Lord Jesus bore witness by the Holy Spirit to the apostles as they laid the foundation for the church so that we would listen to their voice in Scripture. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 3. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
It was declared at first by the Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus. Declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us. That's whoever's received, who's writing this letter, the people writing this letter. It was attested to us by those who heard. Who's that? The apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He was bearing witness. They were attesting to us what the Lord said, what the Lord did. They were attesting to us, and the Lord was bearing witness to them through signs and wonders and miracles. And to Christ, obviously. The Spirit of Christ built his church on an apostolic foundation. Whenever we see, by the way, an explosion of this kind of miraculous activity like we see in Acts here, in chapter 5 and verse 12, which, by the way, prior to this, we've seen one lame man healed in Acts, and that's all we've really been referenced. Now we see this kind of explosion of miraculous activity through them. Whenever we see that kind of explosion of miraculous activity in Scripture, and we rarely see that kind of explosion of miraculous activity, when we do see it, we've entered a new redemptive historical era, a new era in which God is working out his plan of salvation, one in which we're receiving new revelation. For example, we see that with Moses, with Joshua, with Elijah and Elisha, with Jesus, and now with the apostles. So the apostles were doing signs and wonders as the Spirit of Christ laid the foundation of the church on their witness. And what kinds of signs and wonders were they doing? Look back at Acts chapter 5 and verse 15. Acts chapter 5 and verse 15. What kinds of signs and wonders were they doing? Just after saying, Luke says that many people were believing, verse 15 he says, so that even, so that they even carried out the sick <coughs> into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So here is this scene in which believers seem to be, new believers seem to be carrying out their friends into the streets on cots and mats to be healed, hoping Peter might walk by and his shadow would even fall on them so they might be healed. And they're bringing them from the towns and villages around. It's not just that these are Christians in Jerusalem or believers in Jerusalem being healed. These are people coming from the surrounding areas being healed. The ministry of the apostles is growing. The church is growing. Word is getting out. And what's interesting about this is the language is, bears quite a bit of similarity to descriptions of Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? Where people are flooding in from towns bringing their, their sick bringing the demon possessed, and Jesus is healing the sick and casting out the demons. And this is occurring as well here with the apostles. And what's interesting is we get this phrase that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's an interesting phrase. That, that word, that his shadow might fall on some of them, is that his shadow might over, that he might overshadow them. Greek term, it's used two other times or in two other really locations in the New Testament. It's used when the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, the incarnation, 
And it's used when God overshadows the disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration. Those two places. It's used those two places. In other words, in these places where the Spirit is powerfully at work in Christ, in his incarnation, and in his transfiguration, we now see that same term applied to Peter. And by extension, potentially to the apostles, though Peter certainly has the the emphasis here. That the Holy Spirit is powerfully working at him. In other words, we come back to what I told you at the beginning. When Luke starts this book of Acts, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Interesting verb. In other words, Jesus isn't done doing and teaching. He's still working and teaching, but now by the Spirit through the apostles. And we see that emphasis picked up here. So I think the emphasis is that the Spirit of Christ has been poured out on the apostles and is indwelling them and empowering them as they lay the foundation of the church. We see particular emphasis on the role of Peter in the first half of Acts and of Paul in the second half. Now the danger that I'm concerned about when I emphasize the role of the apostles, particularly the role of Peter, is that someone might attempt to make a pope out of them. It's happened before, you know that? That's not the point of their foundation-laying ministry. The point is not that Peter established a papacy in Rome, which is then passed down by apostolic succession through a series of, of bishops at Rome who are infallible popes. That, that's not the point. We don't even know if Peter got to Rome, by the way. The point is not that we're going to look to a papacy forevermore for authority. The point is that the church is to be devoted to the apostles' doctrine because the, the apostles lay the foundation of the church. We're devoted to the scriptures they give us. We see that the Spirit attested to their ministry and their teaching, and the Spirit has delivered to us through them the New Testament, and we now have an Old Testament and a New Testament. This is the foundation laid by the prophets and the apostles. This, is, this book is the Spirit-inspired, inerrant, holy, authoritative, all-sufficient Word of God. We are a people under that word. Our doctrine and lives aren't normed by our experiences or our thoughts. Our doctrine and lives are normed by the Scripture and the Scripture alone. That's what I mean by the fact that I say the Spirit of Christ, as a characteristic of a church the Spirit of Christ is building, is that he laid an apostolic foundation. In other words, a characteristic of a church the Spirit of Christ is building in today's parlance is that it's a church built upon the Word of God that finds the Word of God as its sole authority. Second, the Spirit of Christ builds a holy church. He not only built a holy church, but he is building a holy church. Second characteristic. Look at the end of verse 12 and into verse 13. That last phrase in verse 12, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. If you remember um, much of what's happened from Acts 2 through 5, 
the church is continually gathering in Solomon's portico with the apostles. The apostles are there teaching, doing miracles. The church is there gathered for worship and for the prayers. And it says here, they're all together in Solomon's portico. It's the normal habit of the church. And notice what it says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. It's an interesting phrase. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. None of the rest seems to be an almost technical term for unbelievers. In fact, if you take this, these, this Greek word here and you trace it through the Gospels and even the Epistles, you'll find that most frequently it refers to unbelievers. And I think that's what Luke's emphasis here. None of the rest, the unbelieving Jews did not dare join them. They kept their distance. They may have observed from afar, but they kept their distance, though it says, interestingly, but the people held them in high esteem. In other words, they weren't going to join them in Solomon's portico for their worship services, but they were going to hold them in high esteem. They did hold them in high esteem. It's an interesting thing that they seem to keep their distance but have a kind of respect for them. There's a, there's a number of reasons why they may have kept their distance, but I want to look at something before that. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. It says that the church is meeting together, well, verse 46, day by day attempting the, attending the temple together. That's Solomon's, they went to Solomon's portico to meet the temple. Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now look at verse, verse 47 praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in some sense, this church had favor with all the people. They were respected by them. They were held in high esteem by them. But they kept their distance, and the question is why. I think the most immediate reason for them keeping their distance is found in verse 11 of chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for their deceitful hypocrisy, and it says in verse 11 of chapter 5, and great fear came upon the whole church, and listen, and upon all who heard of these things. Ananias and Sapphira have been struck dead because of their deceitful hypocrisy, and the people know about it, and likely they're going to keep their distance. I, I said to, after I preached that text last week, talked about how there are times in Scripture where God seems to work immediately, directly in judging and, and even taking people out, sending them to their death. Here, 1 Corinthians 11, we could look at other passages. I was real proud of all the people who showed up for the membership class knowing that, you know, <laughs> this church believes we could die, you know, <laughs> for sin. So they, they still showed up. But it struck fear in the people. So they keep their distance. Jesus wants his church. Now, I, I emphasize this. Jesus wants his church to be holy, and he sometimes works that out directly, as with Ananias and Sapphira, and sometimes he works that out indirectly, as through church discipline. But know this, a church in which the Spirit of Christ is working takes holiness seriously. It takes church discipline seriously, and the world may respect such a church, may, it possibly even may have favor with the people for a time, as the early church does here, as Jesus did it at a time in his ministry. But it's also true that people may keep their distance, 
and people may mock, as also happened to Jesus and has also happened to the early church. It isn't as if if we were all incredibly consistent, holy people all the time, loving each other sacrificially all the time, that the world out there would always favor us. I think we seem to believe that. They may respect us for a time. They may mock us. That, that's up to the Spirit of God how that goes for us. But the fact is, the Spirit wants to set us apart to be holy. He's building a holy church. Things like church discipline, things like the power of God at work in a church like this are going to cause people to probably keep their distance. But Christ expects that his church will be holy. We are adopted as sons of the Father, the people who love the Lord, and thus the people who desire to keep his commandments. That may earn us favor with the people out there. That may earn us mocking with them. But what we know is the Spirit of Christ is building his church into a holy people. Third, the Spirit of Christ builds an evangelistic church. Look at verse 14. And more than ever... It's an interesting phrase, comparative phrase. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This is interesting on on two sides. One, more than ever, and then the phrase multitudes of both men and women. Up till now, we've only been told there were 3,000 men added. There were 5,000 men added. Now, think about how big those crowds are at Pentecost, 3,000 men at the healing of the, the lame man, some 5,000 men. And now we're told, more than ever, believers are being added, both, multitudes of both men and women. In other words, the emphasis here of Luke seems to be that the church is just exploding in growth with new believers. While some were keeping their distance, the Lord kept working powerfully to save many people. The Lord saved, in fact, more than ever. People believed in the Lord Jesus, and they were saved. When I say the Spirit of Christ builds an evangelistic church, I want to make a qualification. I do not mean a church where everyone is on a personal evangelism team. Okay, it's not what I mean. I'm afraid to say the church builds an evangel or the Spirit of Christ builds an evangelistic church because I'm afraid most of us are going to hear he builds a church with lots of evangelistic programs. That isn't what I mean. I also do not mean a church that has a heart for people out there that they might have some kind of religious experience. An evangelistic church, I want you to hear this because it's important, an evangelistic church has a heart for sound doctrine being proclaimed. Hear that? It has a heart for sound doctrine being proclaimed. An evangelistic church is committed to the apostles' doctrine being taught, being proclaimed, being spread abroad. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the apostles' doctrine. Now, I want you to understand that we see the apostles teaching the apostles' doctrine on display in the sermon at Pentecost. We see it on display in the very next sermon 
after they heal the lame man and Peter stands up and preaches and essentially scans quickly the entirety of the Old Testament and says that it's all fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and present reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that's the apostles' doctrine. That the Old Testament has found its fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That he alone is the only name that saves. That we must look to him. That he is an all-sufficient Savior. They know that. They believe that. They teach that. They're committed to that. They're devoted to it. That's what it means to have the heart of an evangelistic church. Look at chapter 4 and verse 29. After they are persecuted... They come back, the believers gather to pray. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. In other words, Lord, we're, I mean, they, they seem to not even deal directly with, I want you to judge their threats, but just look upon their threats. Lord, you deal with their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform through the name of of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They're committed to teaching the word. They're committed to sound doctrine, to it being proclaimed to those who have not heard. Now look at verse 43 of chapter 4, or excuse me, 33 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In other words, that's a summation of their preaching. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. An evangelistic church is not ashamed of the gospel. It's not ashamed of the apostles' doctrine because an evangelistic church believes the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. An evangelist church believes that people can be zealous for God, but if it's not according to knowledge, if people don't know the true gospel, that they, they can't establish their own righteousness but must trust in Christ as their righteousness, then people are damned. We have the privilege, we've had the privilege here of seeing lots of people saved. We're thankful that so many people have been saved. We've seen several people sent to unreached people groups so that more people will be saved. And we hope to see more and more people saved. And that means we must be absolutely committed to the gospel being preached and to prayer. These are the means the Holy Spirit uses to give spiritual life and faith and to sanctify us as a body. But there can be a danger in misreading a passage like this in Acts a dangerous kind of misreading that happens. We see that the people pray, that the people preach, and that the early church then has mass revival, and we can somehow begin to think that prayer mixed with sound preaching will work automatically. The Lord is clearly ushering in a new age in Acts. He's clearly doing something unique and distinct. Acts is not normative in the sense that the Spirit always works in the exact same way as the Spirit is working here. It is true the Spirit always works through the exact same means, through prayer 
and preaching the word. However, the Spirit does not automatically bless those means to the salvation of many. It is possible to faithfully pray and proclaim the word for years while seeing little fruit. It's possible. I have friends in the ministry whose churches haven't grown as fast as this one, who haven't seen as many people saved as we've seen saved or baptized, we've seen baptized, and they actually sit down with me over coffee and, and feel quite discouraged about it. And, and I have to constantly remind them, there is no reason for you to believe that because the Spirit is blowing here the way He wills and, and not in the same way at your church, that somehow you're less faithful in preaching and prayer. You may even be more faithful in preaching and prayer, for all I know. The Lord sovereignly gives the increase. There have been seasons where we've seen many people saved here and seasons where we've seen very few. And we need to trust the Lord by preaching sound doctrine, knowing that He will add to our number those who are being saved. It can be culturally enticing, though. I have to tell you, it can be culturally enticing to look for worldly gimmicks and emotive experiences and entertainment to help us draw people in, and then as the numbers swell, to pretend that that swelling of numbers equals conversion. Look at that megachurch over there. They, I mean, they pack people in with their concert. They have a really practical ministry with all kinds of cool programs people like. Their pastor is humorous and uplifting and entertaining. He's nothing like you. Anyway, <laughs> loads of people are going there and they're making decisions. The Spirit is at work there. Perhaps we should do what they're doing. What does Paul say about such gimmicks in ministry? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, not to entertain, not to use soaring rhetoric, humor, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's a damning statement about a ministry methodology, isn't it? Paul is clear that to use eloquence to entertain the audience to use worldly methodologies is to empty the cross of its power, and that's a serious condemnation of any ministry methodology. Rather, we're to preach Christ and Him crucified, for we're not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Finally, let's look at the fourth characteristic of the church that the Spirit of Christ builds. The Spirit of Christ builds a visible church. You guys hear that? The Spirit of Christ builds a visible church. Look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 14 again. And more... More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Believers were added to the Lord. I want you to hear that. Believers were added to the Lord. Look at Acts chapter 2 at the very end as a summary statement of what's happening as a result of Pentecost and the church being devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers and loving one another well and sharing, being generous 
and praising God and having favor with all the people. End of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now here's the thing. These people are visibly added. They aren't making private, secret decisions. You can't count people you're unaware of, can you? I think this is summarizing this idea that they're baptized. That they're actively involved in the local church, that there, there are no secret believers here. These people aren't just coming around, hearing the apostles at a distance, making some kind of individual and private decision for Christ, and then going on their merry way. These people are added to the visible church. They're public and known believers who are part of Christ's church. Given the language of adding to the church in Acts 2, we can assume, I think, that these believers are baptized and that they are regularly participating in the life and worship of the church. Listen, if you see a church claiming that hundreds or thousands of people are being saved and baptized there, but the visible membership of that church is not demonstrably growing, there's a real problem, isn't there? Christ does not offer a private variety of Christianity. You understand that? There is no such thing as a private variety of Christianity in which you walk an aisle, make a decision, and then wander off to live separate from the church. Yes, when we believe we're saved into the invisible church, but the Bible has only one category. I want you to be clear on this. The Bible only has one category for a professing believer who's not part of the visible church. You know what that category is? Excommunication. That's it. The only category I can find in Scripture for a professing believer who's not part of a visible church is the category of excommunication. And I guess what I'm saying is, don't self-excommunicate. Do not give up on the visible church and the means of grace which can only be found in the visible church. Don't forsake the gathering yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, for it's impossible, listen, and I want to conclude with this, impossible to be in faithful communion with Christ outside of his church. And there is no greater horror to the believer than to lose his communion with Christ. Now that plane just fell on the runway and it's over, so let me pray. <laughs> let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the grace that you have shown us in your Son, Jesus Christ. For the fact that you decreed to send your Son and to save us through him. That after his crucifixion and resurrection, he ascended to your right hand, and that he is our ruling and reigning Lord, that he is present in his church by his spirit, that he has laid a foundation through the apostles and the prophets, that he has given us the word of God as our authority. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work in such a way in us that we would grow in holiness, that we would joyfully walk in your commandments, that we would know the privilege of being your sons more and more, that we would take holiness seriously here, that we would know that 
Christ is our righteousness, that we have no hope apart from him, that we would proclaim him to the ends of the earth. Father, pray that you would make us into a church that loves the apostles' doctrine, that, that loves the word of God, loves the gospel and, and wants Jesus to be known as the fulfillment of all your promises, knowing that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And that we would proclaim him to the ends of the earth that many people would be saved. You would add them to your visible church. Father, cause us to not forsake the gathering ourselves together, to forsake the means of grace found in the church, but to desire more than anything to grow in our fellowship with you so that you would be exalted and you would be known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.